Well, Bill, my friend, good morning. Good morning, Brewer. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. I missed uh, I missed you guys last week, but I did listen. Loved. I loved hearing the conversation. We missed having but you there. I'm glad. Uh, was that the first time you've had been able to meet um, Father Kenneth Tanner? It is. It was the first time I was able to uh, talk to him in that sort of like intimate sort of one on one setting. And it turns out uh, his bishop lives Oh, his bishop's church is like 45 minutes from from where I live here in New York. Oh, so I think next year he's going to be coming up here like two or three times and we're going to be able to hang out and, you know, get some drinks and talk and all that. So it, it was it was a cool, oh, cool connection. I'm so jealous. I love that. It's yeah. He's, he's great. Um, yeah, man. So I, I think Chris mentioned it last week, but I was in England, uh, in Birmingham for, um, like the brief little residential thing that distance, um, uh, distance PhD students have to do in my program. And it was so good. Um, it was an interesting time to be there. I was there for the queen's funeral, though I wasn't able to make it down to London unfortunately, but, um, but yeah, just the week was great and meeting so many other students from several different departments. It was really, really good. I mean, I love the program, but being distance, it is, it is really difficult to feel connected. So how did you feel, uh, being away from, from Ali for the first time? Yeah, that was brutal. That was really hard, but thank God for FaceTime you know, yes. so we FaceTime every single day, um, at least a couple of times. So it was great. And my in-laws came and then, and then later, a uh, dear friend of Katie's and just to kind of help. So that was, that was good. And then this week, which let me kind of start with an eye towards, towards the text. Cool. So um, obviously Chris is not here with us. He's not just silent and listening he is not here so for all of you who come to hear chris and i do not blame you uh for that i can just tell you the disappointing news now it's <laughs> it's just it's just father bill and me and uh and so yeah we'll be we'll be kind of talking talking this week and i i'm glad that you're willing to do this bill because i've um, like I told you, I'm, I'm really for speaking this weekend for preaching this weekend, I'm coming to the texts way late. Part of that is just because, you know, I got in from England, I was jet lagged, it really took me a significant amount of time, it felt like to reorient <laughs> to the world. But also because it's just been a crazy week for us, Katie's maternity leave ended. So she started back teaching. Um, Ollie started daycare. No one could have prepared me for how hard that was. Very gracious. Yep. Yeah, that was brutal. Yep. Um, and also there's just a lot going on. I've been preparing a talk um, uh, about baptism that's happening after church this Sunday uh, for some folks. And then um, and also this this Sunday, I'm wanting to talk to the church a bit more broadly about some of my own journey into holy orders and my ordination and stuff like that, which I'm super excited about, but obviously wanting to be, um, you know, really um, 
thoughtful about. So thanks for thanks for being willing to to chat about this about these texts. Yeah, I mean, all I can think about is how like we're like Keanu Reeves in the movie The Replacements when the National <laughs> Football League went on strike and they had to get some some guys to play. Hopefully, we do better not only than they did, but also hopefully we do better than his acting. Yeah. But I, just I just don't know if we will without Chris. Chris is Chris is my comfort zone here. So, well, well I yeah, we're just gonna. I mean, here's the thing. We and you're right. That's exactly right. And when Chris is here you know, I'm, I'm only ever worried about facilitating moving the conversation along, but now with you, which is something that you and I do anyways, uh, I feel like, okay, I, I'm, I maybe need to, to have the conversation. Although I would, I would much rather just put it all on you. Let me just direct and I'll just, I'll just listen to you talk, Bill. I'm happy to do that. And I would, I would just talk probably fine. <laughs> To, to whatever listeners are still listening after they heard that Chris isn't here. I just apologize ahead of time, but thank you for remaining on this long. The two of you that still are. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. So, well, do you want to guess which track I've chosen for the lectionary passages? I, uh, it's not hard. It's not a hard guess. Um, okay. I'm, I'm the pumpkin spice latte, happy fall, watching Nightmare Before Christmas twice with my daughter already. Can't wait to go with the leaves. <laughs> Family man. And so I assume you being the opposite of me there probably chose Lamentations as opposed to Habakkuk. You are not wrong. Uh, Lamentations is on the docket, and I am sitting here with my black coffee. Yeah. So, yes, yes, that's ex that's exactly right. I love it. That's exactly right. You're the um, prophet. <laughs> well, I'm not a prophet. I'm just the one who's weeping, <laughs> <laughs> weeping without any kind of prophetic utterances. <laughs> so let's 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 start there and then we'll um we've actually got two two passages from lamentations lamentations one one through six and then lamentations three 19 through 26 and then we can uh hop to the epistle which is second timothy one one through 14 and then we'll uh let's end with the gospel luke luke 17 5 through 10 so in lamentations maybe just kick us off what 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 is it that you're seeing what are you what are, what are you drawn to and so everybody just gets on the page here so it starts with chapter one you know how lonely sits the city that was once full of people and it describes you know the the falling apart of what was once beauty is now like sort of this ghost town and it's uh it's really brought to a climax in lamentations 1 5 where it says her foes have become the head her enemies prosper because the lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions her children have gone away captives before the foe. And so it just gives this like deep sense of like, you know, we, we've, we've entirely lost ourselves, We've lost our way. Uh, we've, we've made mistakes and now we're, we're off to exile and, and nothing is what it used to be. And then there's obviously the uh, very famous uh, text that it jumps to Lamentations 3 and you get, you know, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You know, it's great as your faithfulness in the text, but I just said thy because I'm just so used to hearing it in the song. 
the lord is my portion says my soul therefore i will hope with him and so you see this you see how lamenting brings you from honesty of the catastrophe and how you're feeling to a place of hope like you know this is this is the part that i don't joke about because you know it's it's the person who's free to lament is also the person who will stumble on hope the fastest i believe mm. you know and so i think yeah. this is why the bible can say that jesus was acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows and also and maybe because of that anointed with joy above his brethren because he was a man free to be acquainted to make grief and sorrow his acquaintance his friend uh, a personal moment uh in his life so i think there's something to be said off the cuff that how free you are to lament and be honest about the moment generally is what sends you to a place where you can say but and we see it in job we see it in jonah where you say but something now is 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 coming up within me as as i lament that says don't don't forget about who you know jesus is don't forget about what Easter actually means. Don't forget about what ordinary time and the day of Pentecost actually means. There's hope to be found, you know, at the bottom of this uh, lamentation. And so there's a, there's a lot to talk about. I'll kick it back to you. But in, as, in a general read, I think the lectionary is bringing us quickly through even what the psalm book does for us. It, it gives us the allowance to be angry, to weep, to lament and shows us that at the center of that lamentation is a hope that arises within it. Not optimism, hope. Optimism ignores the negative and just focuses on the positive. Hope is actually for the negative, that something Mm -hmm. can happen in it. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, I think... I think that's right, And, and to your point about that ability to lament. I mean, I think part of it is it's, it's, it's deeply bound up with our hope, right? I mean, I think if our hope is in the Lord and the promises that we have in Christ, so like, you know, just thinking like, thinking about like what, is it Julian? I think, yeah, Julian of Norwich all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Yes. Um, you know, that that promise, um, if we have that hope, it does mean that, I think it even does mean that we're going to experience a kind of acute lament, right? That things are not well, right? Like, God, I think these are the things that you've promised. I think this is what you've you know, this is what you've told us. This is what we can have hope in, right? That the glory of God is going to cover the earth, right? As the waters cover the sea. That when we see him, we'll be made like him. Um, but yet that is not at all like what's going on. That's not at all what what things what things are like. And so there is real limit. I mean, of course, in Lamentations, there's the there is this unbelievable destruction that's that has taken place um, this, this fall and this kind of, you know, what, what on earth are we going to do? But I mean, this pattern shows up everywhere. I mean, of course we have it in the Psalms of lament, right? This kind of, you know, this naming, this clear eyed naming of what's gone on, 
this is what it's like, and this is what it feels like. Um, and usually there's a kind of, uh, bringing that before the Lord, right? Like God, where your promise is not sure, <laughs> you know, right. but then there's, but then there's, uh, this kind of, um, reassertion of the promises of God, but this, this is who you are, right? You, you are my portion. Therefore I will hope in you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there, there's, I think it's important to, you know, one of the things that I've, that you experience when you, when you are trying to shepherd a congregation is the themes of like what hits people the hardest. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are very hurt because of what's been done to them by other people. And that that's one kind of pain. And then there's another kind of pain when you know that what you're dealing with in life, and maybe this is one or two people who are listening right now, but when you know that the, the decisions you made that turned out to not be the best decisions are part of why you're in the struggle you're in, that's a different kind of hurt. That hurt hits different. And, and no one is stronger than the other, but I think this lamentation, small six verses gets at both of them. Like Israel is being taken captive. That's what's being done to them. But they're also sensing, you know, God's grief over the, the decisions they've made as a, as a people themselves. And so there's both the sin of what's happening to them. And we have to be careful never to treat these texts like God is giving one nation allowance to colonize or hurt or make slaves of another nation. And it's okay because nation A sinned. So nation B can come in and now do whatever they want. This is a quick snapshot of two things that have gone wrong. Israel has made mistakes and Babylon here is also making a mistake, right? And this lamentation is about, it's about the prayer that happens when you're at the bottom of what people have done to you. And also at the bottom of the decisions you've made that you may look back and say, man, I wish I could have that moment back. I wish I could have sent a different text. <laughs> I wish I didn't respond. I wish I didn't put my money there. And in both of those kinds of pain, God can be found through the lamentation of it. That's part of the sanctifying process. The lamentation brings you through. It's a sanctifying fire. It's a fire that purifies. And it brings you through the pain of what other people have done and the pain of what we may have done that we would look back and say, I wish I could have that moment over again. Both of those things are happening here. And God is fixing to redeem not just Israel, but Babylon, and not just Babylon, but Israel, and not just Israel and Babylon, but the entire system that they're both operating in, in the land that this is happening on. This is what God is wanting to restore. And part of that restoration is our tears and our remembering of our baptism and our remembering of the fact that we were baptized into grace and mercy. Mercy for ourselves and mercy for those who are hurting us as well. Yeah, I love that. I, I wonder, um, you, you had mentioned a little bit about a conversation you had regarding restorative justice. I wonder if you might say, say a little something about that. 
Yeah, I was at uh, two days ago. I was at I was in White Plains, New York, and I was invited to speak on a panel um, of clergy who were speaking at a conference about social justice, specifically within the criminal justice system. And before we spoke, I uh, had the privilege of speaking with one of the pastors, and I asked him what his passion was right now. And he said, my passion right now, and this is in the context of social justice, like in the political spectrum. And he mm -hmm. said, his passion is restorative justice. And I said, you know, could you describe to me very quickly what restorative justice means for you? And he drew a triangle on in his notebook. And on each of the points of the triangle, he had the victim was one point. The victimizer was another point, and the community where the trauma happens was the third point. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how real justice restores the victim one way, restores the one who caused the pain by bringing them to an awareness of the pain they're causing or they've caused, and the communal reasons that created the ability for that to happen and then how the how the community needs to be restored because these things have happened in it mm -hmm. and so restorative justice is the restoration of the the one who was hurt the one who did the hurting and the community where that atrocity happened and i kind of see that in this text where like israel is tucked into exile so israel and and her sin is tucked into the nation that's oppressing them and their sin. And then Jesus is tucked into the tribe of Judah, hidden in there. His lineage is hidden in there. Mm -hmm. And as Jesus reveals his ministry, his gospel, it restores Israel. It restores Babylon. And we know ultimately it restores the land on which all of this happened. Which is probably why in a minute we're going to talk about how Jesus said faith is like a seed because it needs to go into the ground and not just change us and and restore those who cause pain, but also the ground itself. Mm. I, I don't want to I don't want to belabor this. I mean, I want to to jump ahead to this Timothy text, but I do think. Part of, part of what I'm drawn to, and as I think about, which I know this isn't just for, these conversations aren't just for people who are preaching these texts, but I am, I am going to be preaching this Sunday, and so I am thinking about it, and I wonder, you know, what does it mean to not hear the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end, they're new every morning, great is your faithfulness, um, to not hear that tritely, um or glibly like sure i mean reading lamentations i don't hear that in a glib kind of manner um but my life isn't lamentations so i wonder i wonder what does it mean to talk about that in ways that are faithful <laughs> and not cheap so for everybody listening I would normally call Chris 
over this. I'd call Chris Brewer and say, Chris, I want to talk about great is thy faithfulness. I want to talk about, you know, what it means to say his mercies are new every morning. How can this be said wrong? How could this be said in a way that's not faithful to the text? And I would ask Brewer that question and say, you know, I don't want to throw out these mantras of hope that the Bible gives us, but I also don't want to be the person who's completely ignorant of the suffering of my brothers and sisters around me, you know, and because I'm standing out there on a fall morning with my pumpkin spice latte, you know, watching the leaves fall and I'm like tweeting and posting great is thy faithfulness. Like, I feel like it's good to exclaim but there could be a way where like we could say this stuff and those who really need to hear it are looking at us saying, wow, like I needed to hear that a different way. Like what would be the way that this could be said unfaithfully or in a way that could actually puncture the work that this verse is actually trying to do? Like what would be an unfaithful way, do you think, to say this? Um. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is saying it, saying it to people who have good reason to lament, <laughs> saying it to those who are suffering, but without being touched by their lament or suffering at all, right? So looking at them and saying, hey, Listen, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You know, great is God's faithfulness. Um, but without, yeah, without really being with them. I mean, that, that feels incredibly dehumanizing. Um, so on the other side of that, I mean, part of, part of what I think of is I need to be listening and I need to be on the lookout for, for people whose lives are, are marked by lament, who have good reason to lament, and yet lives that also speak to hope, right? Lives that also, um, you know, that sing, that sing this song. So good. I, I think that require, I mean, part of what I'm just really consumed by right now, I find it comes up in conversations. I know we've talked about it on this, on this podcast. Chris and I have talked about it. I've, I've done it in my, in my reading specifically, having really gotten into Bonhoeffer these last couple of years and trying to really absorb a lot of, a lot of Bonhoeffer stuff, but this idea of um, the real reality that that Christ is what is most real and presence a kind of attunement um, a kind of attunement to that um, I I have a lot of thoughts on that but without going too far just to say that I, I am amazed at people both individuals and communities whose lives have the kind of presence that can weep with this kind of lament, but can also be marked by a kind of, not naive either, um, like deep hope. Yeah, yes. Um, 
you know, I, I guess, I think it was Eddie Hillison. Um, I've talked about this in church before, and maybe we even talked about it on this podcast. I can't remember, but as, as she and others are being whisked away in a train from one camp to another where she would end up, uh, where she would end up dying concentration camp where she would end up dying. She scrawls out on a little piece of paper and throws it out the train and it's found amazingly. Hmm. And she says, the, the kind of final words are, we left the camp singing. Wow. Yeah, I don't, I, I can't pretend to understand that. <laughs> right. Except that I look to that and I say, this kind of presence is actually possible. This isn't, this isn't an abstraction. Right. Um, there, there are people who, who can live with this and, and maybe that's just it. I mean, they can live with this and live with this for the rest of us, <laughs> you know, kind of and carry why, us along. That's why I'm so, I'm not just saying this. I'm so grateful to, you know, have people like you and Chris and, you know, Diana Robles and JP, like people to call and say, hey, you know, what language can we use here? Because what, what I just wrote down feverishly while, while you were talking is that the reason why this verse, great is thy faithfulness or the new mercies every morning, the reason why it's become the powerful text that it is the reason why we can proof text it out of its context and it works is because it was said by somebody who was deeply suffering that's why it's anointed that's why it has power and the minute we divorce it from the fact that it was said by somebody who was actually suffering terribly unimaginably the minute we divorce it from that we use it you know like we would use some sort of some sort of, uh, you know, like in a casino where we just, we want to see the three cherries pop up so that we could get blessed. You know what I mean? And in, in reality, what I hear you saying is before we can say this, we have to learn it from people who are saying it while they're suffering. It's, and we should never offer this as a command to somebody who's suffering. So if there's somebody who's suffering, we can't command them to say, Oh, no, you need to know, great is thy faithfulness. There's a reason why this verse isn't verse one in chapter one of Lamentations. This, the, the, the song, the, the song that eventually shows up in, in chapter three, great is thy faithfulness, it develops through the lamentation. It's never said to stop the lamentation. It's never, stop, it's never said to stop the lamenting. It's never said to end the lamenting. There's a reason why it's not the first or the last verse of this book, right? It's something that happens in the lament. So the minute we use it as tonic or medicine or Tylenol to say, take this verse, it will get better. We're no longer, we're using it the way that Satan used Psalm 91 against Jesus in the wilderness. We're using it the wrong way. So I, I, I love what you're saying there about we need to learn 
we need to learn from people who are deeply suffering who sing how that developed in them as opposed to us or maybe somebody who's not suffering we try to teach it to people who are but it's the suffering that need to teach this to those of us who aren't yeah and i mean i'm i'm really influenced by people like james cone and james baldwin on oh my gosh you know on this point um that i mean think about the kind of god that we profess right and confess who what is god's relationship to death right jesus dies yeah he's actually dead he dies that's right of course he he he's resurrected but like if we're baptized into his life you know then it seems it seems to be a deep misunderstanding a deep misknowing of of who of who he is to think that we're also going to be saved from death and i think that there are people um who live with that right who who live with that knowledge that like this this is the god uh who goes into death but because god goes into death i can know that even in death he is there that's right right even in death, he is there. And that, and that death, yes, death isn't going to have the last word, but I can be certain that death will come. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, that, that's why I think the verse is powerful because it's said by somebody who is actually suffering. Well, let's, let's look ahead then a little bit to, um, to second timothy um this is i mean of course with some of the things i've been thinking about this this passage has you know a lot of a lot of meaning to me i'm i will tell you that pastoral epistles are not texts that i preach from very often <laughs> uh so i don't know if there's anything that you're you're hearing here or specifically anything that you're seeing that ties into these uh, to what we've already said about lamentations. Yeah, I do. Um, I'm going to start reading it. It's Second Timothy three. I'm just going to. I, I want to read it because I think it's important to actually hear it. And so I'm going to start in verse three, Second uh, Timothy one, verse three, and it says, "I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors," which is a really interesting statement. We don't have to go down that rabbit trail, but my God, if you just pause there, if you just have like a Selah moment right there. Paul's ancestors served God with a clear, that's, we got to get Chris back and talk about it. Um, as I remember you, he's talking to Timothy, constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So yeah, I think, I think, and then he goes on to talk about how Timothy's going to suffer for the gospel because of this calling that has been uh, discerned over him, given to him by the laying on of hands, and that he's been sent out to, to work uh, vocationally. And I think it's important to start with the verse, like, again, 
Lamentations, great is thy faithfulness. We pluck that out of the field it's supposed to grow in, which is lament. I think we've plucked a verse out of the field here too, where we say God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Um, by the way, just a sidebar from a sarcastic pastor. If anyone ever tells you that you shouldn't be walking in fear because the Bible says I haven't given you a spirit of fear, ask them if they have perfect self-control. Because if you don't have perfect self-control, you're walking in fear. I have not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So the, 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 the lack of self-control is the presence of fear. And so again, just if anyone wants to hit you in the face with that verse, they treat it like a rock that they could throw at you. Say, do you have perfect self-control? Because if you don't, you're afraid of something. And That's right. If they want to hit you with that rock... Bill's just given us a rock with which we can hit them. Hit them back. <laughs> that is the gospel. <laughs> Chris, if you made it this far listening to this debacle, I apologize. <laughs> By now, you're probably so disappointed with us. What's happened here? No, I think, I think it's vital, uh, Chris, for those of us who have been called into ministry, which I think you're going to be talking to your church a little bit about, you know, your your journey and what being ordained into the priesthood means for you. Uh, we've been on this journey together for roughly about the same amount of time. Uh, yeah. We've, we've discussed our ups and our downs with what it all means. And we have some funny stories to tell uh, about that journey. Yes. But Paul is telling Timothy not to be afraid, but to walk into this calling. And I think part of what he's telling him, why he's telling him to not be afraid is because this calling takes us all the way to people to situations that moralism and legalism seek to avoid hmm. moralism and legalism want to be at the top of the mountain they want to differentiate themselves from other people they want the church to be way above everybody else and show how much better we are and how much more elite we are and the real calling of the gospel brings you to the place where people should say of you why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners you're you're now a minister why are you associating with those people like it brings you to that calling paul will spend the rest of his life writing from jail being misunderstood being cast out running from cities being shipwrecked because the gospel brings you into the fellowship of christ's sufferings it doesn't uh, it's it's not an entrepreneurial calling. It's a holy, sacred calling. And we all need to hear it as ministers. And we need to let our churches know you're also called. You're all priests in the kingdom of God. And so this calling should take you to places where people won't understand, where people will misunderstand you, where they will accuse you, where they will think that the work you're doing isn't the work you should be doing, because the gospel is offensive in a lot of ways. And so yeah, I think it brings us into Babylon for Babylon. Right. So don't be ashamed, he don't says. Ashamed. Right. Which yeah. I mean, that's that's what I'm always struck by. I mean, anytime I read things like that in scripture, you know, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. I mean, that's that's one of the first things I always think is like, okay, so there's reason that we would be would want to be afraid or or would or would feel um would feel ashamed. And I think part well, there's a few things here. I mean, one is just that I, I'm amazed at how 
this faith is talked about that is in such humanizing ways, right? I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother and your mother, and now I'm sure lives in you, that the faith that we have is a received faith and that we would do well to know the nature of this faith, to, to recognize that, right? I mean, I think I, that's one of the reasons why I love when, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm Pentecostal. I mean, and one of the things that I love is, you know, our testimonies, right? Because I think that's, that's, that's part of, of, you know, kind of bearing, bearing this out. But also for this reason, I'm reminded to you to rekindle the gift of God that's within you through the laying on of hands. I mean, so it's not only like, Timothy, you needed to receive this faith because that's the way that this faith is given, right? But that, that reception it necessitates other people it necess and what God has planned for you necessitated this. I mean, this is kind of, this is, I think at the heart of sacramentality, which I don't, you know, may not be that kind of language may not be familiar to everyone, but it's just this idea that, um, that God's God's work is bound up with our work, right? Yeah. Necessarily. So. Cause he's the kind of God who shares what he does. That's exactly right. Yeah. And God has included us in this work. The church that I, I serve, that, that I serve at currently, even before I ever started working there, one of the things that I remember that was said every time we prayed for one another, which was every, every Sunday, um, is, you know, your touch could be the touch of God in someone's life. Hmm. Um, that, yeah, we're going to lay hands on you. And we're going to pray for you because we trust that, that God is here That's right. <laughs> and that the Lord is, that the Lord is in this and is a part of this and is a part of this work. Um, and so, and then I love this, right? Don't, don't be ashamed um, because this doesn't, all of this doesn't work in the ways that we we want our systems to work. <laughs> That's right. Because look at what he says. He says, do not be ashamed of what? Of the testimony of our Lord, who is the Lord, the one who hangs naked, bloodied and beaten and dies. Don't be ashamed of that testimony or of me, his prisoner. So again, don't be ashamed of the Lord because, you know, they're going to tell you, well, he was just a man who was a failed prophet, Right. And don't be afraid of me because I'm no longer this like, you know, highfalutin, you know, academic at the top of my game, but I'm now a guy in prison. And I, you know, I count all that as loss, but share in suffering for the gospel for that is the power of God. So literally speaking to any of us who are called either vocationally or just in an ecclesial way through the local church that we're a part of called to be priests and priestesses in the kingdom of, of God saying when the gospel brings you to the place it brought Jesus do not think it has failed do not be embarrassed do not join you know don't don't let materialism be the metric that you use to determine how well you're doing as a person in the gospel and he's even saying don't be ashamed when the gift in you feels like it's running low it is something that has to be fanned into flame 
It's something that will run low at times. You're not a failure. You haven't done something wrong. It's something that needs to be fanned into flame. It's something that can only be fanned into flame when someone else writes you that letter to fan it into flame. I can't, I can't even fan my own gift into flame. I need a Chris Brewer or a Chris Green to call me and remind me of who I am. Right. And so like he's saying, don't think that these things are failures when you feel like when you think your light is going out or you're not as effective as you used to be, or it's taking you places and people are misunderstanding you. Don't be ashamed of that. It, that is the gospel working. It's bringing you where the gospel needs to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, so it's not, it's not a matter of success or failure, but of grace and faithfulness. Right, because the gospel has to transform what success means, and the gospel has to transform what failure means. And so for those of us who, like, quote-unquote, find success, we're there to transform what that feeling even is. Like, if we're satisfied with that feeling of success, that satisfaction is an ism that needs to be broken. And so some of us may be in a place where it's really working because we need, God wants to transform what success means. It means in our time, I'm higher than you. I'm better than you. I've been promoted because you're not being promoted. You know, right. life is working for me. If you want life to work for you this way, imitate what I did. He wants to break that. Yeah. And then for some of us, we're in a season just of drought and winter and darkness in our, in our ministry or just in our life as ministry. And it's because God wants to transform the spirit that darkness has over people. Darkness means I didn't do the right thing. I didn't follow the principles. I didn't follow the rules. And that's why this is happening to me. And he wants to break that as much as he wants to break the materialistic metric of success. And so like, if you if you're listening and you find yourself in a place of great abundance understand like you know like it says in the book of common prayer shield the suffering and shield the joyous right yeah Protect yeah from the the spirit of successful ism and help me break it so that success can be something that everybody can have in every time and place right and not not just in a particular location and then going into the darkness and being put in prison like Paul. It's like and being misunderstood and feeling like you're not effective. And the, the, the despair that that can have over somebody, the gospel wants to break that as well. So whether you're successful or quote unquote failing, the gospel wants to transform both of those things. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I'm rambling. I'm sorry. No, I, I think it does. A, a, a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've heard we've heard Chris riff on this in the past, but, you know, my my own riff is just that it's that is at least part of what that means is a life or lives collectively, but a life that's not that's not tossed around by success or failure. That's right. Right. Um, but a life that is that is that's grounded that's anchored, that's present, that is self-control, right? That is, uh, that is in control of, of oneself in the best, in the best of ways. Yep. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I think, yeah. And how does he give that to Timothy? He, sometimes we miss the obvious. He writes to him to remind him that this gift was delivered to him through generations. He reminds him to fan it into flame. But the whole point is he's writing this to him. Like, this is the kind of, if, if we ever feel discouraged because we can't get ourselves up for ministry, we can't get ourselves out of bed, we can't, we don't feel like we're effective in ministry, in our life, in our vocation, whatever it is, it's, it's not something that we can make happen in ourselves, right? It's a gift mm -hmm. we have to give each other. He's writing right. a letter to tell him this. The reason I'm reading it is because Paul wrote a letter. And so what we need to do, like this, this should remind us to write these letters to each other, whether that letter is a phone call, a text message, an email, getting coffee, but we should constantly be reminding each other. If we're way up on the success pole or way down, we should be reminding each other, fan into flame the gift that is in you. Mm -hmm. We should be reminding each other that there is a gift in us <laughs> to be fanned into flame. But if we don't remind each other, we're never going to be able to do this on our own. So this is a communal call to the church to remind itself and its members that there's more happening in you than you feel right now. And I'm going to help you realize that. That's exactly right. And this is, among other things, this is, you know, part of what we mean when we say, remember your baptism. And I think this is also why the church, let's say so much of the church globally and historically practices um, infant baptism. This is, right. I mean, it's the same kind of thing that, that Paul's saying, right? Hey, look, God's given you this gift. And I'm reminding you to rekindle the gift of God that's within you, which was given through the laying on of my hands. Right. Timothy. It didn't come right? from I, your choice. It didn't come because of something you did. It was, it passed through multiple members of your family. And then it passed through my hands. Like it's never one person's decision that this gift exists. That's right. I mean, I, so I was, I told you I was preparing a kind of conversation about baptism for some folks in my church and I was rereading some things. And one of the, uh, I think it's a document called living sacramentally that Rowan Williams put out a few years ago. And in the section on uh, baptism, he has this line uh, about um, he's talking about baptism and specifically he's talking about infant baptism. And he says that we don't wait for people to have adequate expressions of their faith before we baptize them. Yes, we do rush indiscriminately and recklessly into baptizing, into baptizing people because the gift poured out is not a gift given by measure. It's not a gift given by measure. So yeah, we do this precisely because this is a gift. And to your point, Bill, like, so I think for the sake of one another and for the sake of ourselves, we should be just like Paul is reminding Timothy, like we need to be reminding one another. Remember your baptism. Remember, remember this gift that was given to you. Remember this life that you have been brought into. Right. And that's what Lamentations is doing. Like here's a person who's down in the doldrums of despair and in there is declaring to us, the reader, great is thy faithfulness. Like he, he's fanning into flame this gift that is in him and he's writing it down 
so that as we read it, we can also fan into flame that gift of hope, that gift of rejoicing, that gift of being able, it's a gift to be able to rest on God's faithfulness. It's not a talent. It's not a virtue that I've cultivated. It's a gift where I can say, you know what? His mercies are new every morning. You know what? Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Like it's a gift that needs to be fanned into flame, but I need to, I need to receive it from the book of Lamentations. I can't just do that for myself. I need you to remind me that that's possible to happen inside of me. Yeah, that's great. So then what, what then does all of this have to say, or, or how does this inform then how you think we should hear Luke 17? the faith of a mustard seed. So remember when I was in the hotel room and we were all talking just before I got ordained and uh, I said very foolishly and in a very silly way, I was like, you know, if this, if this doesn't work out, like I can just, you know, I can just walk away from this. Right. And you, you and Chris Green laughed at me and you were like, you don't understand. Like, and I had already been ordained as a deacon at that point. As a deacon, yeah. And you said, no, 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 once, once you're ordained, you're always ordained. Like, this is something God does. It's like baptism. You don't need to get baptized. I come from a church culture where, like, we all got baptized 4,700 times. That's right. Oh, you know, gosh. I've, yeah, I've, been in, right. I've been in the font as much as I've been in the shower. You know what I mean? Like, it's just <laughs> a lot of times. And, like, all anyone after the first one didn't need to happen you know you could make arguments whatever but it didn't need to and i think this is why it's scary whether you're an ordained minister or whether you're part of the local church you're part of the baptized community that is ordained in the earth i think this text this gospel text is why it's scary because you're accepting a responsibility that can only be bared up with other people mm -hmm. if this gets individualized if the calling to be christ in the earth to be priests in the earth is ever individualized it immediately crushes us and that's not yeah. just for the pastor that's everybody like the minute we privatize the faith and make it about our personal walk with the lord it gets crushing it doesn't get better it gets crushing and I think this text kind of shows kind of shows why. Can I read it? Yeah, please, please. Luke 17, starting in five. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith, which is hopefully something we all say to the Lord, increase our faith, what disciples say. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say... We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Yeah. It can sound problematic in some ways there. 
Mm -hmm. I know there's moments where I wish Jesus said things differently than he said them. Because <laughs> <laughs> he could have made my life a little easier if he did. Yeah. What do you see there, Chris? Um, I think part of what I see is just an orientation to a different way of living. I mean, I, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about how only the faithful obey and only the obedient are faithful. And, or I heard it said like this somewhere else. Um, obedience is just finding adequate ways to express our gratitude. Mm. That it's, it's um, a kind of life that's oriented differently. That is, we learn from the God who is revealed in Jesus um, that this is a God whose life is one that serves. And in our serving, in our just doing what we ought, we find, oh, that's really living. That is really living. Yeah. Taking care of one another, lifting one another up, serving as he served. Um, that's what it means to live. I'm just, just doing what I should have done. I'm, I'm just trying to find adequate ways to express my gratitude. Yep. Yeah. And I think that serving for its own sake, serving as an end in and of itself is the mustard seed of faith. It's why, like, G they say, give us more faith. And Jesus essentially says, like, you don't have any. Because if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you'd be doing some incredible things. Creation would obey you, he says, essentially. Like, you would tell the mulberry tree what to do, and the mulberry tree would listen. He's kind of hearkening back to Adam and Eve. And he's saying, if you had faith, you'd have dominion. If you had faith, you would be able to say things, and things would happen. Now, if that's all Jesus said, we'd be in trouble because for a long time, the church treated Jesus like that's all he said. Mm -hmm. If you had faith, you'd be able to declare to creation what you want it to do and it would obey you. Right? Right. So I don't know. I'm sure you have, Brew. I know I have. I'm sure most people who are listening have. And if you haven't, you're blessed and highly favored of the Lord. But I'm sure we've heard things like, you know, we can speak to things that are not as though they are. Mm -hmm. And we can, we can create wealth by declaring it. If we have faith, we can declare promotion. We can declare the house is mine. We can declare, I'll have that car. We can declare, you know, I, I even heard somebody say to me, you know what? Start tithing on what you want to make. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then God will give it to you. And it's like, I think, I think if Chris was here, I could hear him say, that's magical thinking. That's yeah. wizardry and witchcraft. Right. Right. That's not gospel craft. That's witchcraft. 
because what Jesus says next is unbelievable to me. And it's grown on me, pun intended, mustard seed faith. It's grown on me as this week has progressed, where Jesus says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, creation would obey you. And then he yep. says what that faith looks like. And he makes a move that is so interesting to me. He says, if you have servants and your servants do what they're supposed to do, you wouldn't commend them for doing what they're supposed to do. They just did what they're supposed to do. And so, mm -hmm. again, if that's all Jesus said, it would sound like faith is living so well that you have servants who do what you tell them to do. So now if I have faith, the mulberry tree would do what I tell it to do. And my servants would do what I tell them to do. Right. And I could order the world. I could shape my world with, with yes, dominion. Yes. You know, Jesus, go ahead. You can open blind eyes. I'm going to open my bank account. Like, you know, they, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, but then he says at the very end in a, in a way that only Jesus does with, with just one sentence of very few words. So you likewise say, we are just the servants and we've done our duty. Mm -hmm. So at that moment, he just replanted the mulberry tree of materialism himself by saying, here's what mustard seed faith is. Mustard seed faith is not the faith that puts you into a position of power where you have people who serve you. Mustard seed faith is the faith that is hidden inside of the person who says, I don't want to be served. I want to be the servant. And listen, it's not even the person who says, I want to serve. It's the person who says, I want to be a servant. Because so many times we serve so that we could get promoted in the kingdom. So like, we're really not servants. We're using right, the right. economy of service to promote ourselves. Right. To try to leverage, leverage yeah. God some yes. way. Yeah. But Jesus is saying, no. You have to say, I'm the worthless servant. I was only doing what was required of me. And that is, and that, that moment is when you have mustard seed faith. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I'm reminded of, you know, how a similar story sounds in, uh, in Mark 11, right? Where they, that weird kind of cursing of the fig tree after Jesus Yes. you know they're 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 leaving uh they're leaving bethany and and jesus is hungry and sees this fig tree right not in season and he curses it you know but then they go and he cleanses the temple and and then they're they're leaving and they see the they see the fig tree and it's withered it's it's dead and peter's like oh my gosh i remember this he's like jesus this this fig tree that you cursed you know it's it's dead and jesus is like yeah have faith in god uh if anyone says to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Right. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold your, if, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. It's incredible, right? Like, because I mean, one way to read this is think about it like this. They've just left the temple. They've just left the temple mount. And Jesus says, if anyone says to this mountain, this mountain, throw yourself into the sea. Right. So, I mean, one way to read it is to say, 
if anyone says to this mountain, you know, the holiest place that there is, the, this, this center of, uh, you know, religious power, among other things, right? Throw, your, throw yourself in the sea, it can happen. But he doesn't stop there, right? Because then he says, whenever you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. And so what I think he does is he flips it, right? Is you're, yeah. You have this sense of like, here's what it means to have faith, to your point. It is power. It is being able to control. It is being able to shape our world in the way that we want. And Jesus goes on and says, and here's what that faith looks like. You're going to be able to forgive people. Here's, what this, here's the shape this, ta- this faith takes. You will be a servant. Yep. That will be the kind of life that you live. Right. So you can imagine him. He says, if you have faith, whatever you ask in my name, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. And everybody leans in and he says, so when you ask for, and they're waiting for him to say, to destroy the Romans, to sit at your right hand and your left hand, he leans in and says, so when you ask for your brother to be forgiven, and they're like, that's not what I would ask for because you don't have faith. So what not having faith looks like, not having faith looks like trying to ascend to a higher position. What not having faith looks like is thinking that the, that the blessed life is the life where people serve you and you don't serve people anymore. Like everything that I was taught growing up that the blessed life is, is precisely the life that lacks mustard seed faith. That's right. What do you have that, that you've not been given? Freely you've received, so freely give. I'm even reminded of the, uh, the parable where Jesus is like, if your kid is hungry, I think it's in, uh, it's in Matthew and Luke. If, you're, if your kid is hungry and he asks for you know, an egg, will you give him a stone? Right. I think even there, Jesus says, so whatever you ask for, it'll be given to you. But he qualifies it like the the kid is asking for an egg not a ferrari (laughs) right and so he's qualifying the things that we should be asking for that god will freely give us are not first world suburban middle to upper class realities they're things like food and servitude and compassion and unity like these are the things that make for mustard seed faith. But these are the requests that God will answer. Like he answers so much. He's like, I, I am food. That's how much I'm embodying mustard seed faith. I have actually become the food that I'm offering you as a servant. I'm a servant who's offering you food. And oh, by the way, the food I'm offering you is me. Right. And how does God, and how does God answer these prayers? not apart from us, but with us. Right. Yep. And so I think like, even to get to the obey point, like I grew up hearing sermons about kingdom dominion and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's going back to the mulberry tree will obey you. Like what will make my children want, or even have the chance to want to quote unquote, obey me would be if I become a person that serves them. I've now also become a person who's safe to listen to. So like we can, you know, like my, my Bishop, Bishop Quentin Moore in, in Kansas, like this man 
is, you know, up there in the CEEC. He's pastored a church for 40 plus years. You know, as, as we say, you know, he'll forget more than I'll ever learn. Um, and yet every time I call him, talk to him, listen to him preach, the dude is just like, a, he's basically a dad. And so he, when he says, like, I was in a crisis one time, I, I had somebody falsely accuse me of something and I told him about it. And uh, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do nothing for three days. And I don't know, Chris, you know me, I'm like uh, Enneagram 8 Pentecostal Italian. So doing, doing nothing for three days is like, I'd rather fast food. And I, the thing is, I trusted him. I trusted him and I did what he said because I know that this guy is a servant. He's not looking for the power and control and the spiritual authority so that he can move his little minions around. He cares deeply about the soul. He cares deeply about the heart. And it made me, it made me able to trust his advice and take it precisely because he's a servant. And so I think like, that's why the mulberry tree would trust the mulberry should be like, I really don't feel like I should go into the sea, <laughs> right? But, it, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a servant, people can trust you. If you're a servant, you become a trustworthy person because your dominion will not be command-oriented dominion. It would be, it'll be servant-oriented dominion. Right. And this is, and this is what Jesus does right? It is the abolition of mastery and slavery altogether. He tucks himself into Judah, who's tucked into Babylon, and he blesses and restores not just Judah from her sins, but Babylon from hers as well, and the land from having that trauma. This is what he does. And yeah. this is what Paul is telling Timothy not to be afraid of. It's grueling hard work. But don't be afraid when you are only ever a servant and you you, you don't live up to the world's metrics. You know, it's it's right. what it's, it's the gift given to us to to go to the bottom, take a towel out, and be willing to wash feet. That's that's what our calling is. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it. It'll produce fruit. Yeah. Let me um I was reminded yesterday of this prayer. I hadn't seen it in years, and I had forgotten that I'd ever read it in the first place, in fact. But if I could, Bill, let me just kind of close with it. It's actually an invocation um, from St. Simeon, the new theologian, an invocation to the Holy Spirit. But if you'll listen, I think there's several lines here that really, I think, hit on what, what we've been saying. So just bear with me. Come, true light. Come, life eternal. Come, hidden mystery. Come, treasure without name. Come, reality beyond all words. Come, person beyond all understanding. Come, rejoicing without end. Come, light that knows no evening. Come, unfailing expectation of the saved. Come, raising of the fallen. Come, resurrection of the dead. Come, all-powerful. For unceasingly you create. 
refashion and change all things by your will alone. Come invisible, invisible whom none may touch and handle. Come for you continue always unmoved, yet at every instant you are wholly in movement. You draw near to us who lie in hell, yet you remain higher than the heavens. Come, for your name fills our hearts with longing and is ever on our lips. Yet, who you are and what your nature is, we cannot say or know. Come, alone to the alone. Come, for you are yourself the desire that is within me. Come, my breath and my life. Come, the consolation of my humble soul. Come, my joy, my glory, my endless delight. Amen. Amen. Man, I would never want to be in their prayer circles because <laughs> the prayers that I would, I'd be like, Lord, thank you uh, for the day. Father God, I just want to say thanks again. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like if, if it was next i would just i would just get slain in the spirit on purpose <laughs> that's right i would just plop, plop down courtesy fall boom just so i didn't have to pray next that's when you gotta pray in tongues bro after you follow prayer like that like i'm just let's just yeah. pray in our if you go after somebody who prays like that pray in tongues cry or pass out those are your only yeah. options <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. all right my friend well it's been a joy we'll uh see if chris decides to publish this or not <laughs> yes.